Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The U.S. Attorney's Office plays a critical role for the federal government in every state across our nation. And for over 230 years, the Office of U.S. Attorney for the District of Connecticut has never been held by an African-American woman. That changed earlier this year when Vanessa Roberts Avery was sworn into office. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, a conversation with U.S. Attorney Vanessa Roberts Avery. She'll talk about her childhood in New Haven and how it informs the work she does today. And later we'll talk to an executive director of the Law and Racial Justice Center at Yale and a recent fellow about how the program is making law school more accessible to students. But first, Vanessa Roberts Avery is U.S. Attorney for the District of Connecticut. U.S. Attorney Avery, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. That is an amazing title to have, but a lot of people may not actually know what a U.S. attorney does. So I want to start with that very basic question. What is the U.S. attorney? It's a great question and one that people often ask. The United States attorney is the top federal law enforcement officer here in Connecticut. And a lot of people don't understand that law enforcement involves several different layers of government here. So you have your local police department, which most people are familiar with, and the city government. And then you have the state police and all of the state prosecutors, the state's attorney. There's also a chief state's attorney. And then at the federal level, you have the United States attorney and all of the federal agencies that have uh, regional offices here in the state. And we all obviously report down to Washington, D.C. and our United States attorney, Merrick Garland. So to have this appointment as the United States attorney for the District of Connecticut, that is an appointment that was made by President Biden, the Biden administration. And so before we talk about all the layers that you just mentioned of how you're working within this federal system to also work with state and local officials, I want to take a step back and talk about you, the person who is within this role. And so for our listeners, you are a native of Connecticut. You grew up in the New Hallville section of New Haven. And you've talked before about what it was like to come of age in New Haven, in New Hallville. Share that with our listeners today, some of that background, so they get to know who you are as a person in this role. Sure. Let me just start by laying out some of what you just said. Uh, I grew up in New Haven, yes, in the heart of New Hallville in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. So that was the height of the crack epidemic and the so-called war on drugs. And growing up in that environment gave me direct experience with what that meant. I, you know, when I hear about the community today, which isn't sadly isn't very different from what it was then, I understand the trauma that is prevalent in the community when you have communities that feel somewhat marginalized from the rest of society, when they are dealing with gun violence and addiction, 
and poverty at levels that other communities may not be experiencing, there's a trauma that is involved in that for a child growing up in that system. And so I understand what that feels like. I remember what it felt like to live in a community where law enforcement was feared and despised. And now I obviously understand what it feels like to live in a community where law enforcement is a trusted partner, helping to maintain the health and the safety of the community. And so being able to bridge that divide based on what I experienced growing up is something that uh, really has driven me to do what I do and to be in this role today. I'm a very proud graduate of the New Haven Public Schools, as probably has been noted before. But I also want to give a shout out to the after school and summer enrichment programs that I attended on the campuses of colleges and universities here. Everybody works together to help raise the child and to bring them up in this society we have here. And I am forever indebted to my village of educators as I grew up and invested in me and helped me to get to this, this place. As I'm listening to you talk about your experience growing up in New Hallville, it sounds familiar to so many of us who grew up in that era, who understood what that meant, not just for individuals, and that was important, but also for families, for communities and neighborhoods, and the, the generational consequences of a lot of that trauma, a lot of that pain. And what often happened is that people were telling kids, you need to just make it out. You need to just make it out of the community. But what I hear in you was this idea, not that I need to make it out, but I need to make it through so that I can do these other things. And you mentioned the importance of education throughout your journey in different steps. Why was education so important for you or so useful for you as you thought about something different than what you saw every day? My family raised us to take a step back, to believe that service is the rent you pay for living. And to me, that meant each one of us, myself, my siblings, you figure out what it is your gifts, talents, and abilities allow you to do to extend that in service to the community. And for me, academics was my thing. You know, I loved school. I loved learning. There wasn't a subject you could put in front of me that I didn't eat up as a young child. And so that was my ticket, my way to give back. You know, even as a child, we were taught how to volunteer in the community and to tutor classmates. You know, my, my siblings teased me because I was serious about giving homework at home when we played school. That was something that was important to me. If I could learn it, and use it in a positive way. I wanted others to be able to do it. And so that's something that I took with me when I went to college, when I went to law school, and then coming back as a practicing attorney here in Connecticut. You mentioned a number of the schools that you attended from elementary through high school. And the common theme is that they were all public schools. So although you were able to supplement and have these experiences in private and independent schools, that foundational approach of public schools in New Haven, the connection to community. And for those of us who know New Haven, we know that the teachers, the administrators often knew your family members. How important was that public school experience for you in growing up and seeing sort of an affirmation of what you were learning at home about the commitment to service and commitment to others? It was critical. I was able to observe my teachers, administrators, other educators volunteering in the community. 
because I saw them not only in the classroom, but I saw them in some of those after-school programs. One of the earliest programs I was involved in was called the follow-through program. It was a program that was sponsored by Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, and they volunteered mentoring young girls in the school system after school, just exposing us to different things outside of our neighborhoods, outside of the curriculum. I remember to this day traveling to the state capitol here in Connecticut for the first time in that follow-through program, being exposed to people who were doing things on a different level than I had ever even imagined possible helped me to expand the horizons of what I thought might be possible for myself. It expanded your horizons. It created new opportunities or exposed you to new opportunities. And you took your talents and your intelligence to Yale University, which is a premier Ivy League institution. But I imagine for a kid growing up in New Haven, given the very sort of contentious history between Yale and the city and the area, and of some people feeling like it is this fortress that people cannot penetrate who are from the area. And yet you, like a number of other students, went to Yale and did quite well there. Was there any tension for you of making that transition from being a New Haven student to being a student at Yale? Or did you just see this as a part of the journey of, I'm smart, I'm focused, I can do this? Great question. I didn't feel the tension myself, but I think I know the reason why. And first, I was exposed to Yale's campus as a middle school student. One of the earliest after-school and enrichment programs I joined is called the Ulysses S. Grant Foundation, which is sponsored at Yale. And uh, I started the summer before my sixth grade year and went all the way through high school. And so I knew Yale's old campus probably as well, if not better than some of the undergraduates who went there because I had spent years on that campus during the summers. I also, during high school, had participated in a language program that Yale ran. And obviously Yale does a number of uh, interactive programs with the New Haven public school system that allow students to engage with their staff. So I was very familiar with Yale. And, um, you know, ironically, because of that familiarity, I originally wanted nothing to do with applying to Yale. I wanted to go away, you know, like most children, I wanted to get out of the state of Connecticut for college. But as, as circumstance would have it, I was convinced otherwise, and I, it was the best, best choice I ever made. So what I find interesting is that, and you shared this with me, that you went to Yale, you thought you were going to be a teacher that you were preparing for this career as an educator, that you had been this little kid giving homework to your siblings in play school. I mean, that's pretty dedicated. And so you went to Yale thinking that you were going to be a teacher, to be the kind of teacher who had also been influential in your life and to give that back. And yet instead of becoming a teacher, you go to Georgetown Law. What was the transition? How did you make that switch between a career in education to deciding you wanted to go to law school? One of the things that I was able to experience at Yale was the ability to have confidence in shifting and changing direction. You know, when you're in school and you're growing up, people often ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you're an adult? And you come up with these ideas and you don't really know what it means because you haven't actually tried it out yet. If you look at my high school yearbook, it will say that I'm going to be an actuary 
when I graduate from school and that's what I'm going to focus on because math was my favorite subject as a senior in high school. And I thought I was going to be a math major at Yale, but I arrived on Yale's campus and an entirely new world of opportunities and options was opened up. And so education, yes, I participated in the teacher preparation program that existed there at the time. And so I had my certification to teach secondary school when I graduated from Yale, in addition to having a bachelor's degree in African-American studies with a concentration in history. And so you get the theme here. There were a variety of different things that I ended up focusing on. And at the end of the day, I realized there's so much that I could do with this degree. And it was a conversation with my mother that steered me to law school. My mother had asked me the question when I was talking to her about, you know, preparing to graduate and teach afterward. She asked the question simply, what about law school? And, um, you know, my mother, the way she interacted with me when it came to things where she thought I was pretty set in with a decision, she would ask questions rather than telling me to do something and make me question my own thinking. And so when she asked the question, what about law school? I said, well, what's wrong with teaching? And she said, I didn't say there was anything wrong with teaching. I just asked, what about law school? And my mother, who is the daughter of sharecroppers from rural South Carolina, who had graduated from high school, despite significant circumstances against her, had this understanding that you could do anything that you set your mind to. And she, she passed that along to me. And when she asked the question, my initial reaction, honestly, was, I'm not sure that I want to go to graduate school yet. You know, I could just graduate and start working. But I talked to mentors on campus and asked a few people what they thought about this idea my mother had of me going to law school. And to a person, they all said, a law school education is the best education you could get. So I thought, I'll go to law school, I'll get my degree, and then I'll go teach, (laughs) maybe at the college level or the law school level. But I fell into litigation when I was a law student through the clinical programs at Georgetown. And um, obviously, the rest is history. It was the right decision, the best decision. As always, my mother was correct. After the break, more from U.S. Attorney Vanessa Roberts Avery. She'll reflect on her time in the Attorney General's office and talk about what's next. And later, how a Yale program is breaking down barriers to law school. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
you're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, three people who are disrupting the way law is taught and practiced in Connecticut. Later, we'll hear about a Yale program that's trying to make law school more accessible. But now we return to our conversation with Vanessa Roberts Avery. Avery is the newly appointed U.S. Attorney for the District of Connecticut. Over her career, Avery has worked for large private law firms like McCarter and English. As to what drew her to working in government and what makes public sector law so appealing. You know, when I went to law school, I was the first one in my family, obviously, to to um, pursue that avenue. I didn't really know what all the options were, and I didn't know which options I would enjoy best. I had started out directly out of law school in the private sector, working in the corporate litigation areas. Um, And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing, wherever I was working, was going to tie back to that service to community. I was fortunate while I was in the private sector to do pro bono work, but I felt like the public sector provides so much more because not only are you having this impact um, in the community on a daily basis, but you are using the resources of government that we all pour into to do so. And you're calling on the resources, again, of people across sectors, uh, across areas to do so much more. I just felt like there was much greater impact. You know, there's certainly things people can do from the private sector, but I think the, um, the focus there and the bottom line when you're in business is very different from the focus when you're in government. You know, my priority is to do justice, period. I don't have to worry about a bottom line in terms of you know, monetary profits or things of that nature. And not that that's, there's anything wrong with that. There's a role for all of us to play. But for me, the driver is the impact and making sure that we are focusing on getting the resources to every community and every person in the community that needs it. So let's talk about what you just said. You do justice. Why the decision to leave Washington, D.C., which some people would say is that's the place to be, to come back home to Connecticut to do justice? Family, ties, friends. When I was in Washington, D.C., I originally thought when I moved there after, so I lived there during law school, returned to Connecticut, and then moved back to work for the Department of Justice, as you noted, And I thought I was going to stay in the D.C. area forever. But there were family circumstances drawing me back to Connecticut and New York and this regional area where I have a lot of family and friends. And so I realized the same work that I envisioned myself doing down in Washington, D.C., I could do here. I could do it in my home state. And I could really impact a lot of the people who I knew on a personal level and their families. And impact communities and institutions that really affected the everyday lives of so many people I knew 
here in this region. So it's been a wonderful welcome home. And I've been back for over a decade now, and it's been fantastic. There is a sensitivity and a connection to community that I hear from you that, frankly, I don't usually hear from people working in the legal field because there is often this barrier of, I just have to do this thing. And you having this connection to people and this interest in community, it's refreshing. But I think it also shows up in, in the work that you do. Before becoming you United States Attorney for Connecticut, you were working as the Assistant Attorney General for Connecticut. And in that role, you were working on a number of issues that touch people across the state. As you look back on that stage of your career, what is the thing that you say you are the most proud of, of your time in the Attorney General's office? Gosh, that's a huge question. I am incredibly fortunate to have had the experience of being an associate attorney general for the state of Connecticut. Um, I I was fortunate also to be able to lead the Division of Enforcement and Public Protection there, which, as you noted, covers a variety of uh, various um, areas. I think the thing of which I am most proud was being able to start to bridge that gap between community and law enforcement and the legal community and and what we do. One thing that popped into mind as you were asking the question was in 2020, I think most people know the state passed the Police Accountability Act. It was not a smooth pass to passage, but um, nonetheless, we have the law in the books. And so the question became, are there things we could do to improve that act, to make it better, to make sure that from a law enforcement perspective and a community perspective, it does what we intended it to do, what the majority of the people who pursued the passage of the act intended for it to do. And so there were a number of task forces set up to look at that. And one was the Connecticut Bar Association's Policing Task Force. And it was an incredible honor to be able to speak for the Office of the Attorney General um, on that task force and to look at use of force policies and pattern of practice authority and all of the other criminal justice priorities that we um, needed to really take a fine tooth and go through at that at that particular time. This was right around um, the time of George Floyd's killing. And so it was a time where the community, um, the tension in the community was at, a, at its peak and the tension on the law enforcement side was at its peak. And there were protests nationwide and, and really worldwide at that time. And to be able to sit at a table, a virtual table uh, with representatives from the law enforcement community, leadership on the policing side, as well as leadership from various community groups and other legal professionals was a profound experience for me. Um, It was one of the turning points in terms of my desire to shift my focus more towards being more involved on the criminal realm. 
So let's talk about the work that you're doing now and, and how you are working to have that impact of enforcing and upholding the law and building community. You are now the first African-American woman to ever hold the position of U.S. Attorney for the District of Connecticut since its inception. And I think that's important because as one of the oldest districts in the country, to have this monumental change in your appointment, but you also assume that office during a time of tremendous tension, as you mentioned, of community saying, we need support, we also need trust. And law enforcement saying, we need support, and we also need trust. How do you manage that history-making appointment that you now have with carrying out the duties that you just mentioned that are inherent to the office? I think it's important to recognize that a lot of times the tensions and the strong emotions, especially when they are negative emotions, often are caused because of misunderstandings at the end of the day. There's a, there's a phrase that goes, it's hard to hate up close. When you bring people to the table in a way that they can really sit and hear each other, you know, not just see each other and not just speak at each other, but to listen and really hear each other, I think we will learn that there are so much more we have in common than we have that's that's um, doesn't overlap and that's unlike. You know, one of the things that I have found, this is through the course of my career, but especially um, now in the past few weeks since I've been in this role, is that just convening a meeting where people can sit around the same table and figure out what it is the issues are that they can agree upon really helps to set the stage for moving forward. And once you can do that, and once people start to get to know each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt and rebuild that trust, right, or establish that trust in the first place, we that's what where the focus needs to be. A lot of people talk about from law enforcement and other government agencies, you know, the, the business community as well, outreach to the community, you know, going out into the community and giving presentations to educate. And I think that's an important first step, but I think that's only the first step. I like to use the term, and it's a DOJ term that I'm fully embracing, community engagement. You know, you want to outreach to the community, but you also want to bring them in so that they can hear and listen and so that you can hear and listen. I think we have an obligation to let the community know that we do hear them. We do see them and we are interested in collaborating with them whenever we can to resolve whatever issues may happen. We can't always agree, but we can certainly respectfully disagree. I want to talk about a, a recent example of that for you and for your office. And one that I think a lot of people are paying attention to, as you said, you are now about at the two month mark of being at a, in office. And recently there have been calls for the federal government to intervene after a New Haven resident named Randy Cox was paralyzed while in police custody and transport to a detention facility. Cox's family has demanded that your office prosecute in this case. And your office met with the family and their representation recently. 
Some people see that as a change in practice of saying, I'm going to engage community, I'm going to engage family, not make promises, but listen, learn, and engage. What is the role of the U.S. Attorney's Office in this case, but also in cases like this? So here's what I can say about that situation. I have issued a statement, and I stand by the statement that has been issued so far. I want to talk about this from a different perspective, and I want to say this. I think when incidents like what happened to Mr. Cox, but what I think is most important to add is that when something like that happens, people need to understand that we care. The community needs to understand that law enforcement cares, that law enforcement is troubled by the same types of things that they're troubled by. They need to understand what the threshold is for us. And they need to understand that if that threshold is crossed, that law enforcement will do its job and do justice. And in that case, and in any subsequent cases that may arise, hopefully we won't have many of them. But I think that is the first step, making sure that the community understands that we care, that we are here for you. We are public servants at the end of the day. And so the community needs to understand the impacted person, their family, the representatives of community groups need to understand that we care, that we are with them, and that we are doing our jobs to make sure that justice is done at the end of the day. It is very early in your tenure as United States Attorney for the District of Connecticut, but I want in the time that we have left to look forward and to look ahead. You're coming into office. You've made history, as I said, as the first African-American woman to hold this position. You are coming into office at a time where law enforcement and community are figuring out what that relationship should be. And really, you're playing a key role in bringing those groups together, not two sides, but bringing groups together. And you also come into office in a very distinctive way compared to your predecessor. As you think about your legacy and the imprint that you want to make, what is that legacy that you want to build for the United States Attorney's Office in Connecticut? If I had to choose one thing, it would be ensuring that we maintain the community engagement element with our work. The the United States Attorney's Office has some of the best prosecutors and trial attorneys in the nation. We have people who have been committed to this work for decades, and we have people who are much newer to the practice. Each one of them, I believe, has joined this office because they want to do justice. They want to pursue the mission that we have to do. And I think we are at a time where we realize achieving that mission is not a one method solution. We need to do our prosecutions of cases. We will always continue to do prosecutions and our traditional investigations, but we also need to integrate the community engagement component as much as possible in all of the work that we do. And so what I hope will be a legacy, uh, what I have certainly started to get underway already with the assistance and support of my leadership team is to do just that, to make community engagement an integral component of our office, I've appointed our first director of community engagement, 
who is a member of our senior management team reporting directly to me and my uh, first assistant United States attorney, the deputy here. And we are excited about the work that we are going to be doing going forward. I think people in the community will be excited about the work that they see, but I think also those who we have partnered with in the past will continue to see the same strong partnerships that we have had in past years as well. So I'm hoping to build on the good and the goodwill that we already have here in the state. And I, I am optimistic and very excited for what it will look like in even a few months down the road. Vanessa Roberts Avery is United States Attorney for the District of Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Brown Dean. When we return, the executive director of Yale's Law and Racial Justice Center, she'll talk about a pipeline program that's dismantling the barriers to law school. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The first cohort of students that are part of a new program at Yale Law School will enter law schools across the country this fall. The Law and Racial Justice Center's Access to Law School program prepares students from historically marginalized groups to navigate the complicated law school landscape. They receive support in everything from understanding the tricky application cycle to providing free LSAT prep courses. Kayla Vinson is executive director of the Law and Racial Justice Center at Yale Law School. She co-leads the Access to Law School program. Kayla, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, I want to talk about this program that you are running through the center because it speaks to this challenge that we know overall. Law school is very difficult to get into, extremely competitive, and it's even more difficult if you are from a group that traditionally has not had access to those kinds of networks and connections to even know what the process is all about. Talk to us about the access to law school program that's a part of the center that you're running. Yes. So the program exists for all of the reasons that you just gave. Um, it is a is a two year program where in the first year fellows are really introduced to all the aspects of the law school admissions process. They are able to take a free LSAT prep course, which is of course one of the biggest one of a, a significant barrier to law school admission access. Um, and throughout the way, they are paired with a law student who's helping to support the program. And so they're able to really build that relationship, which becomes a major source of support when fellows move into the second year of the fellowship, which is when they actually apply to law school. And so we really think of ourselves as being there both to and through the law school admissions process. And as our inaugural group of fellows enters law school in the fall, also um, expanding the program to support folks actually through law school and building a community of fellows who will know each other as lawyers and professionals and colleagues in their careers. 
What I think is interesting about this program and, and what makes it distinctive from some others is that while it is open to anyone, there's a particular emphasis on people who traditionally have not had those opportunities. And we're talking here about first generation students and graduates, lower income people, formerly incarcerated members of different underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. But what is also key here is that in supporting prospective law students, there's a key emphasis on residents of New Haven. Why is that so important to the program? I think it goes to part of the or the ethos of the Law and Racial Justice Center, which is to really think about who are our neighbors and what does it mean to behave in ways that suggest that we think of those people as our neighbors, right? There, there's a fraught history between Yale and New Haven in many ways and for many communities. And so we really want to think about how do we use our resources in a way that pays attention to that history, that attends to the fact that some of these barriers that exist everywhere exist in particular in the place where we're located. And we have a particular responsibility and connection and desire to support people who are our own neighbors. I want to talk a little bit about that history because it is so key for how people perceive Yale for how they connect to this kind of program and resource, but also what it means overall. The center was founded by Professor James Warman, who comes from a family of civil rights leaders, but also in his own right has been dedicated and devoted to erasing some of those barriers. Do you see any tension between having this particular program, its emphasis on bringing new people into the law school experience, housing it at Yale, which, as you said, has this fraught relationship with the town and often has been seen as this sort of fortress or gatekeeper for people. Do you see a tension there or is this a way to say we're going to be better neighbors and make this intentional investment in people in this community? Yeah, I think the answer there is is yes and yes. I think there both is a tension, but I think a part of being neighborly and a part of being committed to community is not running away from tension and trying to figure out what you can do to ameliorate some of that. And so the center is just a very small piece of Yale. And so we really only speak for ourselves and, and, and the ways that we want to use the resources that we have access to to be useful to other people. And I think in particular, the genesis of the program um, helps to think about why that feels so important to us. And that's that James has taught um, classes that are inside out. And so some of his students are law students and some of his students are incarcerated people who are enrolled in the course. And he would often have the students who were incarcerated say, you know, he's teaching a law class. It's making them interested in wanting to go to law school. And they would say, well, can I go to law school when I get out of here? And the technical answer is yes, right? But we know that there's a lot that makes the technical yes, it's really hard for that to be a real life yes. And so the program is really designed to say for the people who they they get the technical yes, that's who the program is for, right? And I think in some ways, who better than our center to be doing that for people locally and, and in our neighborhood? So I want to bring into the conversation someone who has that realistic yes and is headed to law school in the fall, and that is Akia Callum. Akia was a fellow with the Access to Law School program, and as I mentioned, is headed to UConn Law in the fall. Akia, it's great to have you back on Disrupted. Hi, everybody. Um, it's great to be here. 
So I want to talk to you because you are headed to law school. You did go through the program and you've been able to build on many of the opportunities that Kayla just mentioned. What was it about this particular program that made you decide this is something I want to do? I think it's so interesting because I almost didn't apply to the program uh, for this very reason that it was my second time applying to go to law school. And I had law school dreams in 2018. I applied to 12 law schools um, with a abysmal score. I had like a 133 on the LSAT. Uh, I was just doing too much, right? And then I ended up paying out of pocket on a credit card for LSAT one-on-one prep and was able to increase my score by eight points, but still wasn't enough for me to go into law school. Uh, got waitlisted for three three schools um, out of the 12 and then got ultimately declined from the other schools I was going to and I was crushed. Um, and I thought I did everything right. I went to school, I did all the extracurriculars, I ran track, I did everything that folks were telling me to do, but I just couldn't pop the bubble. Um, ended up getting my master's in education and thought that was just going to be the end of my, my, my educational my journey. I thought law school wasn't going to be something that I need to aspire to do anymore. It was anything that was going to be in my peer review just because I didn't have the skill set to crack that code around testing and standardized testing. Uh, that submitted my application for the Access to Law School program after hearing several people from my village, um, both in New Haven and surrounding towns, talking about like Akia, like this is your opportunity to apply. Um, I was like, you know, why would I apply? Like Yale didn't accept me the first time I tried to apply to their school. Um, this might not be a great fit for me, but recognizing that the target audience and target population that they had specifically aligned with who I was. I- I'm a first generation um, daughter of immigrants, proud daughter of immigrants, black woman um, in the city of New Haven. And knowing that I went through, through public schools uh, in the country, like figuring out what that looks like uh, moving forward and trying to move that needle of access uh, in person in reality uh, and making sure that we, not only that I was able to go through the program, but at least go through the process and say like, you know, Akia, if this doesn't work out, then like maybe it's not for you. But ultimately it did. Akia, what do you say to other students, other people who may be in a similar situation of having this dream, having this hope, working toward that and encountering these barriers? What would you say to other people who have gone through similar situations as you have about what this program can mean, not just in the immediate sense in terms of getting into law school, but as you mentioned, building and extending the village in new ways? Yeah, I mean, I think... My my guiding compass is like my plan B is always to make my plan A work and figuring out what that might might look like in, in any given sense, right? So my call to action to students that might be interested in going to law school or pursuing higher education is go after it, seek out those opportunities, uh, develop mentors and mentor relationships that you might be able to have access to. Uh, we had the George Crawford Bar Association here in the state of Connecticut, a Black Bar Association reach out to them, join, become a member. I think what is so critical about this program, and I, I can't stress this enough, is the fact that we've been able to build community within our program itself, but also outside. I remember um, going to UConn, I think two weeks ago for our barbecue, and seeing some of the fellows that are also gonna be going to UConn Law this fall was like, oh my gosh, like we're gonna be here together, and this is gonna be another leg of our journey. Um, coming from the Access Program, being a part of the inaugural class in 2020, and now I'm being able to move into um, reality of actually being students on campus, that looks a lot different. But also recognizing that um, 
we're also non-traditional, right? Like I think I mentioned um, to several folks that I'm not 18 anymore. I have bills that I have to pay. I have a family I need to take care of. And like, you know, going to law school full time was not something that I could possibly do right now. Um, and being able to do that part time is definitely something um, to take into consideration uh, where students might think that there's only one road to the marketplace and like there's multiple journeys that you could probably take on, especially during this time of COVID, uh, where they have been able to provide ample opportunities where you could do uh, hybrid programming as well. There's so much in what you just mentioned about your experience, Akia, that isn't just your experience. It is a common experience for so many, but people feel this thing where they have to sort of keep it to themselves because they don't fit this traditional, quote unquote, traditional profile. And what you're reminding all of us is that that traditional profile no longer holds. And so we need to think differently in terms of how we cultivate student opportunities, but also the impact that students can have. You mentioned that you have your master's in education. You're now embarking on law school programs. What is it that Akia Callum wants to do in the future in harnessing this opportunity and building community? Yeah, I think uh, going back to how, how the access program has also prepared folks for um, the next level of their journey, their educational journey, it's also cracking the code around uh, application cycles. I think folks just get to the point of like, I have to take the LSAT and that's it. But the application is also another process that you have to undergo. Um, one of my, my essays that I wrote, um, and I wrote three of them, um, was actually around the adultification of black girls. A lot of times folks don't, don't recognize that black girls are oftentimes expelled at higher rates than black boys in schools. And I, knowing that I was one of those students that um, talk back and have like those um, little comments on, on their report cards when they were growing up around um, talking as, as opposed to advocacy uh, was definitely something that I was interested in highlighting in, in my law school journey. Uh, so for me, I find myself at the intersection of civil rights and, and education and being able to leverage my, my background in education and now couple it with my lived and my learned experience of advocacy to help propel and, and kind of shape and, and change systems as best as possible. I think also throughout this course of this programming, um, recognizing that black girls also don't don't have access to um, mental health resources. Uh, and, you know, as someone that is actively seeking out support around mental health resources uh, to be able to get diagnosed, whether it's ADHD or whatever mental illness it is, like that's also to help propel and shape, shape how that shows up. Um, are we now um, going against the stigma against what that might look like to get students of color tested? Uh, because ultimately, we all need support. So I think those that's definitely the intersection where I, where I am um, around civil rights and education, making sure that we have access to all, all information as well as resources available in our communities. Kayla, I want to bring you back into this conversation because as I'm listening to Akia, it's clear that this program while creating opportunities for individual fellows and the fellows as a cohort, this is really about creating opportunities for communities and for neighborhoods and for people to see those opportunities in their fullness. And yet we often hear from law schools, from higher ed overall, that there's this pipeline problem. We want to be more diverse, but we just don't have the people. What is it that you hope this program will do to change that narrative, to have that impact, and to show what can happen when you make an intentional commitment to doing something different? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that part of, and is part of in what Akia was just saying, part of what happens for folks who are um, non-traditional law students is which, as you said, no longer holds, is that what most people who are really successful at getting into law school and getting into law school they want to go to are doing that in community, right? Whether that's because their parent is a lawyer or their parent has a friend who's a lawyer or they have other professionals in their lives, they're completing those applications in community. They're taking LSAT prep courses with other people. And what happens for people who are either first generation or low income or have other barriers to educational access is that what other people are doing in community, they're doing in isolation, right? So Akia was always someone who could go to law school. She was always someone who would be a phenomenal lawyer. And all our program did was provide her access to what lots of other people get when they're applying to and going to law school, which is community. And a community of people who are both where she's at in the you know, law school process, and also a community of people who are a little bit further because they're in law school and people who are already lawyers. And so I think that part of what this program will do will demystify this idea that the right people just sort of rise to the top in the admissions process. And it's that the people with community are the ones who rise to the top. And we should be giving everybody access to that community while they're going through this process. What do you say to people who are listening to this conversation, who are thinking, yes, this sounds amazing. I want to be part of community. I want to see if this is actually for me and something that I can do. What do you say to people who are interested in this program and perhaps want to learn more about it? I'm so happy. I would love if listeners have exactly that reaction. Um, Our website does give a lot of information about our program. We are the Law and Racial Justice Center at Yale. And if you go to our website, there's a link to the Law School Access Program, and it provides a lot of information about the program itself, some frequently asked questions. Um, And every year in April, when we open our application, that is where you can find it. Um, It is a relatively short application that asks about your interest in law school um, and asks for a letter of recommendation. And so so the application is open from April until about July of every year. And so I I highly encourage you to start thinking now, start getting excited about the possibility of being in our fourth cohort, which is what we will be, um, who we will be selecting next year. And we are, so, and also I think you should reach out if you have questions. Um, our email address is lawaccess at yale.edu um, because we want to be in touch with you. And if you are, for example, going to apply to law school this year, and so it's not going to work out to be an hour program, our website also has a lot of um, free resources that are available to anyone who's applying to law school. So I encourage you to look there and also to reach out to us by email. And so we'll be sure to put a link to that program on our website. Kayla Vinson is executive director of the Law and Racial Justice Center at Yale Law School. Akia Callum was a fellow of the program and will join the UConn School of Law in the fall. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, J. Carla Larson, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Anya Gondowski and Mira Raju. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.